Good morning. We are continuing our conversation about the DNA of a missional congregation today. And uh, we're going to be looking at a number of different texts as we do that. So uh, uh, let me invite you uh, just to return again to that posture of prayer as we ask God to be present with us in this uh, conversation. Holy God, Savior, Spirit, thank you for being here in this place with us. Thank you for the promise that you have given to us, that you are here, that you are in our midst, that you inhabit our praise, that you listen to our prayers, that you're speaking through your word, that you're alive and active, and that you are working even now. And so, Lord, we want to be open to whatever that good work is that you want to do. Help us to be receptive and responsive to you. And let that be our act of worship above all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, this morning we are going to continue um, thinking about the DNA of a missional congregation. And specifically today, we are going to look at the four values of Midland Reformed Church, the four values of MRC. And uh, as we think about these four values... Um, let me just uh, speak to a couple of different uh, audiences. One, one, of, one group uh, may consist of folks who are visiting us for the very first time. Uh, you're, you've been a guest with us for a week or two, and uh, this is a great opportunity for you to hear what MRC is all about. Uh, as we talk about our values, these are the things uh, that are really at the heart of who we are trying to be as God's people. And so we're really glad that you're here and we hope that uh, you will engage in this conversation uh, and uh, take the opportunity to learn something about who we are and input uh, some of who you are as well into that uh, conversation. Uh, there's a second group of people, and there may be a group of people here today who, have, uh, who are not uh, guests, who are not just checking out MRC, who are not just trying to figure out what this place is about. Uh, you've been here a long, long time, and you're still trying to figure out what this place is about. Uh, maybe uh, you have looked around and you have uh, wondered about the pace of change. Uh, you've struggled with differences. You've struggled with loss. You've str struggled with uncertainty. And uh, maybe you've heard somebody say, or maybe you've said it yourself, where are we going? I just don't know where we're going as a church. And here's what I want to say to you. This is, this is your series. This is, a, this, this, is, this is a message for you. This is a series for you. Because while we may not know everything about where we are going as a church, God always calls his people to a land that we know not of. He always calls us into a, a geography and a landscape where we've not been before. We do not know where we're going as a church. That's the nature of what it means to live and walk by faith. And so while we may not know everything about where we are going, when we think about the values that God calls us to live by, we do know a lot about who we're supposed to be in the going. And so this conversation is about who we are, who we are being, who, are we, who we are becoming as we go to that land that we know not of. 
And then another group of us, and uh, this is for the um, this is for the uh, the rest of us, I would imagine, because what I'm going to suggest today is that these are values that are not only important for a congregation, but these are values, perhaps not the only values that we find in the scriptures. But these are essential values. These are significant values. These are values that if you move from the front of the Bible to the back of the Bible, you will see these themes and these values resurface over and over and over again. Not just for congregations, not just for spiritual communities, but these are values that are important for anybody who wants to grow as a follower of Jesus. And so with all three of those in view... Uh, we want to talk a little bit about what our values are. And so the question is, what are these values that we're talking about? And hopefully, uh, you've seen this before. Uh, It normally lives right on the back wall of our lobby. And so every time you walk out of this room, it's in front of you. Every time you walk into the uh, gymnasium area, uh, you're walking past it. Uh, Next time you're by your mailbox, look at it. Think about it. Uh, sometimes it's uh, up here on the screen. It's always in your uh, worship bulletin as well. If you look at this uh, uh, sort of uh, diagram, uh, the middle circle represents something that you might think of as a bullseye. And that's our vision. Right? Our vision is where we're, what, we're, what we're aiming at. What, what are we aiming at? We're, we're, we're aiming at being the sorts of people who are loving God, loving our neighbor, and leading change. That's a vision uh, of our church. And then around the outside of the bullseye are a series of steps, a, a series of things that we actually do that move us towards accomplishing that vision. And so the things that we do, those things that are arranged around the bullseye, you can think of as our mission. What are we doing? What do we do when we show up? What, we, what do we do when we're engaged in activities with Middle Reformed Church? These are the activities that we engage in that help us to hit the bullseye. And then all of it, the whole business, sets on this foundation of values. These values that holds everything up are the values of authenticity and integrity and courage and love. And if you you like the image of a bullseye, maybe you could think of an arrow that's being uh, aimed at that bullseye. And the values are the, the feathers that, that, that um, sit on that arrow and help that arrow to fly true. The values are what keep us on course. The values are what shape and define who we are. And so today we're going to spend the rest of our time sort of doing a survey uh, very quickly of these four values. A number of years ago, uh, I was looking at my files and I, and I discovered that we did a whole series on these values. And we took a couple of weeks on each one of them. And so today, we're going to compress all of that into one message. And so we're going to fly through this. Uh, the first value that I want us to talk about is the value of authenticity. And I want to start by asking this question. What is the very first word of grace that God speaks to broken humanity? What's the very first word of grace that God speaks to broken humanity? And I want to suggest that we find that in Genesis chapter 3. This is a passage that comes right after Adam and Eve uh, sin against God, they rebel against God, they turn away from God, uh, they eat the forbidden fruit, and then we find uh, this 
statement in the aftermath of that decision. This is Genesis 3, verse 8. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden at the windy time of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. And God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, for I am naked. So I hid myself. So what's the first word of grace that God speaks to broken humanity? The first word of grace is a question. And God says, where are you? Where are you? It's it's as if God is coming and saying, why are you hiding from me? What are you, what are you running away from me for? And, and the God that comes to us asking that is not coming with accusation in his voice. The God that comes and says, where are you? Is not a God <clears throat> who is looking to punish and be angry and get revenge. But the God who comes and says, where are you? Why are you hiding? I want to see you. Is, the, is a God who comes with the Father's love, who wants to begin, even in that moment, to restore Adam and Eve to the relationship that they had once enjoyed. The text says that Adam and Eve realized that they were naked. Earlier on in Genesis chapter 3, we read that they were both created naked and they were not ashamed and they were able to be fully present with one another and fully present and available to God. But now they stand in the garden and they're ashamed and they hide. And my experience is that almost every single one of us have had an experience where we realize that we are naked, we realize that we are vulnerable, and we learn how to hide. None of us gets out of childhood, even the very best versions of childhood, without learning how to hide. Often beginning sometime in our early lives, we expressed or exposed some weakness that we had, some fear that we had, some longing that we had, some need that we had. And instead of that need being met with grace and support and responsiveness, somehow that need went unmet. Somehow we were made to feel ashamed for having that need or having that wound. We were judged or criticized or shamed or we were betrayed. And because of the pain of that experience, we learned how to hide We learn how to avoid being seen. I love this picture that we have on the slide. It's a picture of somebody who is both hiding and pretending to not be hiding. It's a way that so many of us approach our spiritual lives. It's a way that so many of us approach our life together as a church. It's a way that we go through life in the world. We're hiding and we're pretending not to hide. Like Adam and Eve, we we find little fig leaves that we gather and we stitch together. Little leaves of our of our intelligence and our humor and our brilliance and our wealth and our and 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 the the, the life that we've constructed for ourselves. And we hide in the trees. And our fear is that somebody will find out who we really are. And God says, "Why are you hiding?" Why are you hiding? I believe unhiding, taking down our hands, being seen, is a lifelong work. 
It's not one and done. It's not something that happened a long time ago and you never have to revisit it. I started this past week seeing a counselor. And I'm seeing a counselor because I realized that there are places in my life where I'm hiding and I didn't even realize that I was hiding and I didn't realize the impact of that hiding. And I was having a conversation with a friend about the counselor that I had chosen. And I said, well, I think this will work out okay. This counselor is a little bit more touchy-feely than I am. And my friend chuckled and responded and said, well, Mike, you've just described most of the human race. (laughs) You've selected exactly the right counselor. It's not easy to stop hiding. It's not easy to take down our hands. It's not easy to be authentic. But why do we go through that process if it's not easy, if it's painful, if it's frightening? Here's why. This is what I believe to the core of my being. It isn't possible to be a follower of Jesus and hide who we really are. We can't pretend to do obedience. God won't heal what we won't acknowledge. And that's not mic talking, that's not psychobabble, that's not, um, that's not uh, some interpretive lens. This is straight out of the Gospels. Listen to what John has to say. John writes this in his first letter. He says, and this is the message uh, which we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in God there is no darkness. Do you hear the message there? Get out of the darkness. Get into the light. Walk in the light. He says in verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and still walk in the darkness, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Do you hear the relationship there between authenticity and community and redemption? God will not heal what we will not acknowledge. If we say that we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, in other words, if we stop hiding, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He comes to us and says, where are you? I want to restore you. I want to be in relationship with you again. Now, this practice of authenticity that we're talking about uh, sometimes is misconstrued. And it's easy to reject something if you create a caricature of it and then reject the caricature of that thing. The misconstrued version of authenticity is uh, sort of just saying everything that there is to say to everybody that you meet all of the time. Uh, Authenticity is not a life without boundaries. It is not a life without filters. It is not a life of uh, being inappropriate with what I say and when I say it and where I say it and who am I say it to. That isn't what we're talking about. But what we're talking about is this, that I have a relentless commitment to walking in the light, that I will not settle for darkness anywhere, that I will not live with secrets in my spiritual community. I bring all of who I am to all of God. And I live in community with Him. 
That's what we mean when we're talking about authenticity. Walking in the light. There's a second value that we can look at, and that's the value of integrity. Now, the word integrity often makes us think of morality. And we think somebody has integrity if they are honest. And I certainly want to say that uh, honesty is included as a part of integrity. But I want to also invite us to consider a larger definition. And the definition of integrity that I would like to uh, suggest we work with is more like the integrity that a bridge has. We would say that a bridge has structural integrity if that bridge holds up when you walk on it or when you drive across it. If you are walking across a bridge or driving across a bridge and it collapses under the weight of the traffic, we would say that bridge lacks integrity. When our team was in Haiti, there was a a massive detour that we had to take to get from the airport to the village where we would be working. And the bridge that uh, uh, would normally have taken us on the shorter distance had collapsed because uh, 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 the the, uh, residents around the bridge had found that that bridge was a good source of hardware. And so anytime they needed a nut or a bolt or a little piece of scrap iron, they would go and just harvest it off the bridge, and pretty soon the whole thing collapsed. It no longer had integrity. What we're saying is that a thing, a bridge, a car, a plane, a marriage, a congregation, a human life, has integrity when it's living according to the way it was designed. When we're living out our intended design, we're living with integrity. So the question is, what is your design? What are you designed to do? What are you designed to be? What, what, what purpose are you designed for? And again, if you want to know where we find out about our original intention, the designer's intention for us, we go all the way back to Genesis. And this time it's in chapter 1. We read this. God said, let us make humankind in our image and according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every moving thing that moves upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image, in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, here we go, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of heaven, and over every animal that moves on the earth. Now you say, oh boy, good deal, I'm in charge of fish and birds. Sort of. Translate it from the world of Genesis to our world, and this is what we're saying. You're designed to be God's image in this world. You're designed both individually and together to be God's representative in the world. To represent God to a watching world over and over again. And one of the things that we see God doing in Scripture is that in the Scriptures, God is a God who gives and keeps his word. Right? Think of all the times that God says something and then that thing happens. Sometimes God says it and it happens immediately. There's no time lapse between the two. Right? What happens? God says, let there be light and there is light right now. Other times, there is a huge gap between them. Right? God says... 
to Abraham, I am going to make you uh, into a nation that is beyond number. And there is a huge span of time that goes by before God is able to keep his promise to Abraham. But over all of the time, from the time God makes that promise to the time that it is fulfilled, we see God at work moving to keep his promise. The promise that God made to Moses, that he would use Moses to deliver his people from uh, bondage in Egypt, is a promise that took decades to work out. Sometimes God's word is kept immediately. Sometimes there's a time span. But ultimately in the scriptures what we find is that there is no gap between who God is and what God says. That what God says is what happens. And so here's the key. When we are living according to our design to be God's image in the world, we are also invited to give our word to big things. And this is a piece of... This is a piece of integrity that we sometimes miss. That part of integrity means that living according to our design means that we are invited to give our word to big things. In Luke chapter 1, Mary becomes the poster child of integrity when the angel Gabriel comes to her and tells her that she is about to be the mother of the Messiah. And what does she do? Mary gives her word. She adds her word to God's word. And she says this in Luke 1. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled in me. When we give our word to big things, we're living according to our design. We're representing God who also gives his word and keeps his word. And so the question is, what are the big things that you're giving your word to? What are the big things that you're promising As a congregation, one of the things that we've given our word to is this. We have said to distressed single-parent families in Midland County, we've said to you, listen, if you're just barely keeping your head above the water, and some days if you're not even doing that, if you are at the end of your rope, we're giving you our word that this congregation will stand with you And we want you to rediscover hope and wholeness in the life and the joy that God intends for you to have. That's a big promise to make. It's a promise that we are not going to fulfill instantaneously. It's a promise that we don't currently have the ability to keep. But it's a promise that we make, and then we make, and we make, and we keep working until we become the sorts of people and the sort of people together that are capable of keeping that promise, keeping our word. Integrity is living according to our our intended design and giving our word to big things. It calls us to live a big life. The next value that I want to uh, think about with you is this value of courage. The value of courage. You know, the most frequent command in the Scriptures... If you do a search on the grammatical structure of commands, the most frequent command that you'll discover is the command, do not fear. Over and over and over again, all through the scriptures, God has to constantly tell us 
Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Do not fear. Over and over. It's the most frequent command in scriptures. Joshua 1.9 is a great example of this. God says this, Did I not command you? Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed. For Yahweh, your God, is with you wherever you go. In some ways, that is the essence of the Scripture's invitation. It's an invitation to live our lives courageously in the knowledge and certainty that God is with us wherever we go and that nothing can separate us from his love. Now, at some level, it isn't possible for us to stop the emotion of fear. For, at some level, it's not possible for us to uh, disconnect for that, uh, that experience of worry or anxiety that we get in the pit of our stomach when something's going wrong. But courage isn't just an emotion. Courage is getting in to motion. Courage is staying in action, even when I'm afraid. In a shorthand definition of courage, is not uh, the absence of fear, but it is doing it scared. Even when I'm afraid, I still stay in action. I was thinking about this definition of courage uh, this summer when Tammy and I were uh, in New York and we visited the uh, 9-11 memorial. And as I was walking through the displays and seeing the the close-up pictures of the rescuers who were still making their way up the stairs even after the first tower had collapsed, And as we listened to uh, the voice recordings of passengers on uh, United Flight 93, uh, it struck me over and over again that there is real fear there. Of course there is real fear there. But they stayed in action, and they moved towards the danger. The opposite reaction is also possible. In the Gospels, we read the story of Peter... Remember when Peter and the other disciples were in the boat on the lake and a storm came up and Jesus came walking to them uh, in the midst of that storm. And Peter said, I want to get out of the boat and walk to you on the water. And Jesus said, come and walk. And for a moment, Peter is able to walk on the water in the same way that Jesus is. And then Luke tells us that Peter looks around and he is afraid. And in that moment, his fear swamps his faith, and he begins to sink. So the question is, as we press into and live into this value of courage, where are the places in our lives that fear is overcoming our faith? Where do I need the courage to stop hiding? Where do I need the courage to connect deeply with another person? Where do I need the courage to make a big promise that I don't currently have the capacity to keep? Where do I need the courage to follow Jesus in deeper obedience? Where do I need courage in the face of fear? And then lastly, the value of love. The value of love. The Bible tells us that God is love. The Bible tells us that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 13, we read that faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Over and over and over again, we're confronted with the reality that there is nothing more central to our Christian life together than the value of love. 
In fact, in order to live in love, we have to be cultivating all of the other prior values. We have to have authenticity and integrity and courage to love well. But we're called to be a community of love. And yes, all of our efforts to love others are based on God's love for us. Part of authenticity means that I'm becoming more and more open to God's love in my life. I'm not resistant to that. I don't push back against that. I'm not hiding from it. But when we talk about the value of love, the the primary focus that we have in mind is the value of loving others. And the value of loving others, we're not talking just about sort of a hallmark uh, card sort of sentimentality. It's not just an emotion. It isn't warm feelings or positive regard in every case. Uh, The word love in our vocabulary is a slippery word, and we apply it to so many different things in so many different circumstances. But when we talk about love as a value, In a spiritual community, uh, we can look very clearly at what Jesus says he means when he calls us to live in love. Jesus says that we follow him by loving our neighbor. And then a lawyer says to him, well, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds by telling a story about loving neighbor. And that story is one that we turn to frequently here in uh, Uh, this setting. It's in Luke chapter 10. Here's Jesus' definition of loving. He says, a Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes and money, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a Jewish priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but also passed by on the other side. And then a despised Samaritan came along, and he saw the man. He felt deep pity. Kneeling beside him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with medicine and bandaged him. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper uh, two pieces of silver and said, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than that, I'll pay the difference next time I'm here. Then Jesus says, Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked? Which of these three demonstrated love for neighbor? And the answer is clear. It's the Samaritan. It's the one who uh, put himself out to meet the needs of the other. In Jesus' thinking, in Jesus' intention, in Jesus' design for how we're to live together, love means acting for the good of the other. Love means acting for the good of the other. I had a conversation this past week with a good friend uh, in Houston. And we were talking about the state of Houston in the aftermath of the hurricane. My friend said that he was really overwhelmed by two things. The first thing that was overwhelming was the scale of human suffering. He said, there, there are no words to describe the, the magnitude of suffering and devastation that we're experiencing here in the city. It's overwhelming. And he said, but there's a second reality that's also present. And he said, it's also overwhelming. And the second reality is this, that there's been a powerful demonstration of love by God's people here in Houston. 
That, that the church is showing up and they're rescuing people from rooftops and, and they're mucking out houses and they're establishing shelters and they're welcoming strangers into their homes and feeding them meals and giving them beds. He said, the church is shining here. The church shines wherever we love well. It's the whole ball game. The church shines whenever we love well. When we choose to act for the good of the other, even to the point of choosing to sacrifice some of my own needs and my own wants, we are never more fully following Jesus than when we're guided by love. So what are the values that are shaping our life together at Midland Reformed Church? What are the values that we take on as individuals who want to to grow in our ability to know and love and serve Jesus? These may not be the only values that you can discover in the Scriptures, but these are essential values. They're indispensable. The value of authenticity the deep commitment to walk in the light and to stay in the light, the value of integrity, living according to our design, giving our word to big things, the value of courage, doing it scared, the value of love, acting for the good of the other. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, thank you for um, the clarity of your, your word. Oftentimes our struggle is not with our understanding of what you're calling us to do, but with actually getting into action and doing it. So Lord, I pray that um, you would protect us from two, from two, um, from two errors. Protect us, on the one hand, from the error that says we've already got this mastered and we have nothing left to learn. Help us to keep growing and developing in in our capacity to live into these values. Help us to see where we have blind spots. Help us to see where, uh, where there's some immaturity and rebellion that's still persisting. Protect us from that sense that we've got it all figured out. And then, Lord, on the other hand, protect us from a sense of being overcome with how inadequate we are. Protect us from uh, um, imagining that the, 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 the destination and the landscape that we paint today is, is so unattainable and so far out of reach that it isn't even worth trying. Lord, in a spirit um, of humility and without any shame, help us just simply to acknowledge where we are to ask for the help that we need and to continue to press into the life that you've called us to together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.